0: It's time for a change! Oh, yeah! I have so much anger, I feel like I've been raped in the face. Great At no point in your rambling were you even close to anything when it be considered irrational thought. Welcome to the Element of Surprise. Buckle your pants, pull up your socks, we might get wet on this ride. That's what she said. Alrighty, let's get right into it. My name is Chadwick J. Suet, I'm your host. This is the Element of Surprise. It's a podcast, it's a mentally irregular podcast where we just take a uh, different look at things that are just uh, considered normal, you know, by everyday society, and uh, we just look at it in a different way. So, uh, you can find us at podbean at eosmentallyirregular.podbean.com. Check out our Facebook page, www.facebook.com backslash eosmentallyirregular and join the Element of Surprise group, the EOS group there. That's where uh, all the stuff that I, you know, more visual things are going to be placed. Um, It's been a rough fucking 40 days, but we'll get into that another time. I just want to do some fun stuff. And I've got a lot of fun stuff planned out. So, we're going to start off right off the bat with some horrifying commercials. So, you might remember back in the day, <coughs> which was a Tuesday, by the way, um, that there was Orkin. The Orkin commercials, they did the pest control. And they did um, all these commercials where they were like, you know, hey, we'll uh, we'll get rid of your pests for you. So, they did it in a way that they thought would be whimsical and like... Uh, you know, well, let, let me just start here. The idea was that Oregon pest control has, you know, pretty much covered all the basics as far as pests that could be in your house. Ants, termites, roaches, you name it, they'll they will get rid of it. Um, in 2011, with the help of a Dallas ad agency, Oregon <clears throat> decided to remind everyone that they can also help you get rid of other types of pests in a funny and whimsical way. Uh, just remember, Going into this, first off, that pest control companies play on our fears of infestation all the time. And uh, because of that, it's, you know, I think that's kind of fair. You know, nobody wants to have an infestation. Nobody wants there to be like bugs or rats or, uh, you know, giant birds or uh, raccoons, Grimace, living in their house. So Orkin reminds us that they can uh, get rid of that for you. this commercial, however, makes the experience of finding a roach in your raisin brand seem very... It, it sounds... It, it, it would be positively pleasant in comparison to what the commercial's offering. So, <clears throat> we open. The commercial opens, and it's a family coming home from vacation to find some strangers shredding um, guitars like Eddie Van Halen in their fucking living room. And, uh, you know, this would be distressing enough on its own. But one look at the faces of the family tells you that they've just come face to face with something not of this world. Something something is wrong. Something that should not be is happening. Namely, man-sized mutant rats that are just horrifying to behold. And one of these rats who walk as men slowly raises a black clawed paw? Hand? I don't know. Whatever. And he points... And he tells, that the family, he tells the family to their face they were not expected back until Sunday. And his tone, literally, he, he betrays no fear of these interlopers, and only has the mild displeasure of one who must kill before the killing time has come. He singles out uh, the boy in the family, pointing at him, and says that they could, quote, use him on drums. I took that to mean that they planned to skin him and turn him into a ceremonial instrument to be played as they sacrifice the rest of the family to a great rat god. Um, The family backs away slowly, I'm sure too afraid to run, crutching each other for safety, pants thoroughly soaked with urine, and that's when the Orkin Man shows up. And we see the Man Rats uh, scurry out, and they drive past the house in a rusty jalopy. And it's the part of the commercial that's supposed to tell you with Orkin, rats will stay out. But, to me, instead gave off the premise of, they're still out there watching and waiting and planning their revenge. Um, Orkin did a complete series of these commercials with these creepy giant pre- giant pests, which I guess were designed to instill the absolute fear of whatever god you personally worship, so that you would call them to eliminate all pests from your personal dwelling immediately. Um, and you can look these up on YouTube, and they're hilarious. Uh, uh, by hilarious, I obviously mean like you know mind-numbingly terrifying, but they are hilarious. Um, another commercial I came across in my in my uh, my studies, my education of myself, was a uh, video game they they released for the uh, Nintendo Wii U, uh, because Nintendo is terrible at both naming games and systems, and the game was called New Super Luigi U, thus again proving that Nintendo is terrible at naming both games and systems. Um, you know, and I, I, I was kind of happy when I heard about this, because I'm like, you know, Luigi has kind of been languishing in the, uh, you know, slightly overweight shadow of Mario, and so he's getting his own platforming adventure. So, you know, what better way to give the Ron Weasley of the Super Mario universe his own spotlight than to announce it with a commercial that is possibly the rapiest video game commercial ever produced. So, we open... The commercial starts, and we get this bizarre ad featuring Princess Peach in a... Yes, Vals, I know. Thank you, Barnabas. We get this ad that features Princess Peach in a, kind of like this minimalist nightmare chamber, like just blackness around her. You can kind of see the tile flooring, but like nothing else around her. And she's trembling. Not not, not terrified, just trembling. Trembling like, uh, like someone would be, you know, if they're walking down a dark alleyway being followed by someone they're terrified of and she's timidly calling out Mario's name. Finally, her cries of terror reach a disturbing crescendo just as they they show tears spilling out of her face and the camera zooms in on her eye to reveal Luigi's leering reflection in her horror-soaked pupil. Um, And this is to advertise Luigi's own game. So I think it's truly impossible to determine what Nintendo was trying to convey with this ad beyond raw primal fear. Um, If the idea here was to make it look like Peach was in trouble and Luigi was coming to her rescue, there was a catastrophic miscommunication somewhere along the way. Um, Also, it's of note that Peach's voice catches on the last Mario just as Luigi reaches her, because clearly those were her last words before she was raped and eaten by the, uh, by the, the plumber who wears green. It's... Inexplicable that the princess should be so utterly frightened of someone that until now we always assumed that was one of the good guys, unless we've seriously misinterpreted what was going on in the Mario games all these years. Um, and maybe Luigi was sinister, sinisterly blending in with the heroes like Topher Grace was in the movie Predators. Um, I like to imagine that they always shared an uncomfortable silence when Mario leaves to go to the bathroom or the kitchen for some pasta, maybe Luigi just sat there uh, leering at Princess Peach, just unblinking and, like, smiling creepily. Who knows? It doesn't change the fact that she's clearly terrified of him, and he probably raped and ate her. And this is supposed to be, hey, you know, come play uh, the new Super Luigi U. You know, so terrifying. Uh, Now, I had to go back to the 1960s for this. You know? I had to go back to the 60s, but I stumbled upon a uh, cereal commercial uh, for, the cereal was called uh, Rice Crinkles, Rice Crinkles, and they had Crinkles the Clown advertise this. So, the idea was, you know, before I go into this commercial, I feel like I got to point out two things. First, even though the commercial was in black and white, sanity had already been invented by the 1960s, and... So, if a certain serial company decided to make a commercial starring a clown, it did not have to look up, or have to end up looking completely terrifying. Because, as I said, sanity had been invented. There are lots of non-scary clowns in the world. The second thing I want to point out is that the element of surprise accepts no responsibility for any sudden accidents suffered while listening to this description. I, i'm I'm not accepting any responsibility if you hear this description and you're like you, you know you have a heart attack or or you you slip and you fall and you hurt yourself i'm not I'm not being held responsible for that okay okay so this is it this is the exact moment when humanity's phobia of clowns was violently born it had to be because the clown the clown it's it's if you watch the commercial, and I'm going to post this on the Element of Surprise group, well, its eyes squint when it tells you, not asks you, mind you, tells you that you love post-Sugar Rice Crinkles best of all. Crinkles the Clown is the granddaddy of every creepy circus dweller with a painted face that has ever traumatized a child, even those that predate him. The ad begins when Crinkle is driven from his subterranean lair by a hunger that can only be satisfied by that most crinkliest of cereals. He dives into a bowl, all the while making faces that suggest crinkly is another word for having the texture of broken glass. (laughs) Having inflicted second degree crinkle cuts on his mouth and throat, Crinkle craves a victim to share in the sweet torment that is post sugar rice crinkles. Uh, For you see, his is not a selfish hunger, But one that must be shared so pouring a second bowl of milk drenched agony we see for a moment a pair of hands reach out to take it and that's when you realize that crinkle's big top was not as deserted as it seemed all along his crinkle crazed ranting had had an audience in the form of a child is this the child's first hellish crinkly breakfast with the clown is it his last as an audience of one watching this i guess we'll never know but You got to watch it and you got to find out for yourself. And, uh, alright, so the last commercial I've got for you goes like this. Uh, Back in 2001, Microsoft needed an eye-catching way to introduce the brand new Xbox system to the public. I'm talking the original Xbox. You know, something that conveyed the power and ingenuity of the system and also the palpable awesomeness of its library of games. So, what they made as an ad for this Um, begins with a woman in a hospital firing an infant out of her splayed crotch like a circus cannon and sending the newborn baby flying through the glass window of the maternity ward and out into the world beyond. As the newborn flies through the sky like a tiny missile made of flesh, it quickly ages into a young boy like it chose poorly and drank from the wrong grail. The boy continues to age, morphing into a teenager, screaming in terror while reflectively, covering his pri- reflexively, I should say, covering his privates because he's flying through the air at speeds high enough to uproot your genitals like a mailbox from a hurricane. Uh, the screaming teen transmogrifies into an equally nude screaming adult, and then finally into a trembling, shrieking old man before smashing headfirst through a dusty sarcophagus into a lonely grave where he remains forever. So after enduring the terrifying minute of nihilistic cinema, were rewarded with the Devil May Care tagline Microsoft invented for, his new, for its new system, Life is short, play more. <clears throat> so, what I take away from this is that, you know, life is short, play more. You're, they want you to buy the Xbox and play. It. And to show us that, they gave us a 13-second lifespan of a child who was fired out of his mother's vagina like a circus cannon. He shoots across what I'm what I can only guess is the northern hemisphere before landing cross-country in a grave that was already pre-plotted for him. So that's Xbox's way of saying, "Hey, come play some happy video games." Jesus Christ. Um, okay. So I wasn't gonna get political. I don't like to, but I'm going to. So there was a GOP candidate who was outed for enjoying uh, Bigfoot erotica. You know, despite the cavalcade of misery, cruelty, and literal child concentration camps, you can't say that American politics haven't been crazy over the past few years. Um, For me, that craziness was always just more enjoyable, but then it reached a point that is like just the most depressing low it could ever fucking reach, because as a Repu- there I found out there was a Republican who had been accused of being into bigfoot porn that's correct I'm not making this up I'm going to say it again there is a Republican Dem- there's a Republican um, candidate who has been accused of being into bigfoot pornography so Republican Denver Riggleman was running for Congress in Virginia His opponent was a woman named Leslie Cockburn, which to me sounds like it's some sort of feminist movement instead of a name. Uh, Cockburn, in typical political fashion, posted scathing criticisms of Riggleman on her Twitter account, accusing the man of being a, quote, devotee of Bigfoot erotica. Cockburn also published screen grabs from Riggleman's now locked Instagram account, showing several of his drawings, like his handmade pencil drawings, of a very sexual-looking and very well-endowed Sasquatch. Uh, The revelations are sure to cost Regleman voters, uh, given that Bigfoot's penis size is among one of the most hotly debated topics among amateur cryptozoologists. Uh, But these revelations aren't as random as supporters of Regleman might want them to be. In 2006, he co-wrote a book titled Bigfoot Exterminators, Inc., The Partially Cautionary, Mostly True Tale of Monster Hunt, 2006. So he's been into the Bigfoot shit before. His Instagram posts also included uh, Riggleman promoting his upcoming book called Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him, which apparently I'm guessing is like the Kama Sutra for getting some Bigfoot dick, if you're a regular human female. Uh, Cockburn, on the other hand, got some criticism for supposedly distracting voters from the issues by slapping them in the face with Bigfoot's dick, but in the same tweet, Cockburn also accused Riggleman of aligning himself with Republican Virginia Senate nominee Corey Stewart, whose candidacy was remarkably poor at not being totally racist. Uh, So perhaps Cockburn's intent is not to kink-shame her opponent, but to sideways raise awareness of his ties to white supremacy, uh, something that sadly no longer gets people on the internet excited the same way as finding out that someone allegedly jerks it to fantasies of the ultimate mythical beast. But, uh, anyway, I'd heard about that, and I just thought about, like, I'm like, you know, I don't like getting political, but I just thought that was worth knowing. Because, uh, you know, you hear a lot of, it, every time there's a political scandal, you hear about it, and it's like, oh, this person had sex with with uh, a porn star. This person was texting pictures of their junk to a 13-year-old girl. And it's just, you know, it's more of the same. You don't, ever expect to hear, oh yeah, this person, he's got an erotic, uh, he's got a, a, a whole notebook full of erotic drawings of himself jerking off Bigfoot. It's like, what? I, I, I think that's awesome, and I kind of want that notebook. Give me the notebook. I want to see what these fucking pictures are like. So when I heard that, I'm like, yeah, I get this needs to be shared. This needs to be shared with the EOS Army. This is mentally irregular enough, just enough to work. Um, so here's a few awful things that exist for no reason. There is an app for mcdonald's ice cream you know and i thought to myself when i heard this i'm like god damn finally mcdonald's has finally released an app to let me know the precise times when their ice me ice cream machines are on my lifestyle is complete so now at around three o'clock every morning 3 a.m i get a powerful hankering for mcdonald's ice cream is it the most gourmet ice cream no it's not some esoteric craft micro-churned, snobby, intellectualist ice cream with interesting flavors. It's wholesome, all-American vanilla like God intended, whipped into a a texture that is inoffensive in every way. When one of these ice cream moods comes over me at 3 a.m., I'm typically garbed in sweatpants and a t-shirt that smells vaguely like salami. I don't want to leave my comfortable filth cocoon, but I must migrate to enter the feeding grounds that is McDonald's. I need that ice cream. It is the gazelle to my lion. The field mouse to my night owl, the human infant blood to my George Soros. When I manage to peel myself off the couch slash futon bed, because yes, I live that life, and shuffle my way into a McDonald's, I expect to receive a healthy serving of perfectly adequate ice cream. There is, but there is a horrifying sentence I fear hearing most. I'm sorry, dude, our ice cream machine is broken tonight. When I hear those words, it feels like my heart has been dropped into an icy pit. And no, it's not that I've eaten so much McDonald's ice cream, the the fact that my heart still functions is nothing short of a miracle. It's that the emotional shock of being deprived of my rightful dollop of generic dairy-produced dessert is so severe, it sends me into a deep and powerful sadness that makes me want to firebomb everything within a 25-foot radius. But now, thanks to whatever angels are above and devils are below, I can count... I can download... an app onto my phone that will tell me when the miraculously average frozen dairy treat makers at McDonald's are working and in top form. Um, Another thing that exists for no reason, there is a KFC scented bath bomb. Now listen to me you soulless corporate demons. A KFC bath bomb already exists. It's called eating KFC in the bath. Why are you trying to commodify our shame? If I want to smell like soap drenched (laughs) chicken, all I have to do is hop in the tub with my family-sized bucket of KFC, turn my rubber ducky away so I can't see his judgmental eyes, and weep as I trade in the last of my dignity for the comfort of eating greasy fried foods while submerged in warm bubbles. But let's suppose that you're marketing this for people who just want to smell like sudsy, <laughs> who just want to smell like sudsy chicken meat without ingesting the roughly two billion calories found in your bucket of chicken. I've got a far more affordable option: Bullion cubes. You can pick them up right in the grocery store for like a couple of bucks. Bouillon cubes come in beef and chicken flavors and can be used to make broths. And who's to say that you can't include a broth made in your tub and flavored with naked human? Besides, you can save the bathwater after you're done and use it in a nice stew. Did the idea of brewing your own human-flavored filthy chicken stock make you throw up in your mouth a little, listeners? Congratulations, you have more sense than whatever marketing team KFC paid to come up with these bath bombs. But, if your secret fetish is being the mushy carrot in a bowl, a bowl of chicken soup, then you are out of luck, because these bath bombs are for a contest of which there were only 100 quote-unquote lucky winners. So, you know the, uh, the jewelry store Tiffany's, correct? Did you know that you can buy a tin can from Tiffany's? And it will only cost you $1,000. I'm not making this shit up. So, it leads me to ask a question, though. Hey, rich people, what's your fucking deal? What are you trying to pull here? An $895 dry cleaning bag as a dress? I don't think so. A $1,000 tin can replica? I don't think so. An anarchist anti-establishment jacket being sold by the establishment for 350 dollars $375? Get fucking real. Is it chic to be poor now, or are you just making fun of me? Either way, you're treading on dangerous waters. When the general non-rich public hears about 895 bag dresses, people start to get angry. When they hear that tin cans are going for a fucking grand, the people start to get so angry their eyes actually produce powerful beams of pure rage energy that can melt glass and will actively seek out ways to hobble your children like Kathy Bates did in Misery. Right now, the wealth gap in this country is bigger than moats. bigger than the moats rich people build around their houses to keep out the poor. I have a feeling taunting the masses with cartoonishly evil versions of capitalism is kind of a bad idea. It's going to make those masses want to brave the imported crocodile-infested moats just so they can jizz in one of your $1,000 tin cans, cut your wife's face off, and then wear it like a mask. And then hobble your children like Kathy Bates in Misery. But, on the other hand, maybe this is a smart move by the absurdly wealthy. In fact, it could be genius. They're not trying to flaunt their wealth. They're trying to cloak it in tin cans and ratty jackets. When the revolution comes, and bands of bloodthirsty, jobless millennials will raid their mansions, they can shrug and point to the largest collection of tin cans in their vaults. Um, And lastly, another thing that exists for no reason. Edible glitter coffee. Yeah, I won't be drinking this coffee. It makes my heart feel like it's doing a William Shatner impression to know this exists. I also don't live in the United Kingdom, so I have no horse in this race. Uh, But I will defend people's rights to enjoy glitter coffee and presumably the glitter poops that will follow drinking this coffee. Because I get it. Glitter is fun. It's sparkly. And who hasn't wanted to taste glitter? I mean, just a small taste. It looks like sugar. I know that for 731 consecutive days in my youth, I dreamt of nothing more than getting a tea foo- teaspoon of glitter and adding it to my coffee. It seems like any new frivolous thing that can be classified as girly, which I would contest, by the way. Glitter is, def- is definitively girly and gets roundly mocked. Uh, pumpkin spice lattes and Ugg boots seem to draw ire at certain times of the year, but because why? Women want to drink something that tastes good while wearing soft, comfortable shoes? So go ahead, enjoy Glitter Coffee, if you're into it. It's like a disco in your mouth, I'm sure, without all the sweaty spandex and gross chest hair of the 1970s. But not me. I'll avoid the glitter. I'll stick to my S'mores Marshmallow Peeps flavored creamers. That's good enough for me. Okay, so, uh... Everybody remember, uh, musician Chuck Berry? Remember, uh, he did Johnny Be Good? His uh, cousin, Marvin, called him from the Enchantment Under the Sea dance and uh, let him listen to Marty McFly play in that song that he would most be famous for. Well, I, I, I found out some information about Chuck, thanks to uh, EOS correspondent Bill on the Streets. And because of this information, I, ha- I have to go into detail on it. So, I think it goes without saying that Chuck Berry is one of the greatest guitar players of all time and one of the inventors of rock music as a whole. Um, in 1990, however, he was also sued for being a gigantic pervert. So, having made all kinds of money from being a music legend, Barry decided to buy a few restaurants, then he decided to buy a few video cameras, and then he decided to install those cameras in the ladies' restrooms of the restaurants he bought, so he could watch some sweet, sweet urination. Then he got the shit sued out of him by nearly 60 women. Of course, Chuck Berry denied, it, denied that any he had any knowledge whatsoever of the cameras, and if the cameras were uh, found in the bathroom, somebody else installed them. Probably one of those renowned bathroom camera bandits you're always hearing about on the news, I'm sure. Um, but despite uh, Chuck Berry's foolproof defense of shrugging and looking as surprised as anyone else, he had to pay over a million dollars, which was then divided up amongst the victims. So, there are rumors that the uh, the police, after this information came out, raided Chuck Berry's house after uh, these videos surfaced. Um, Supposedly, the police found some very nasty home videos at Chuck Berry's residence. And one of the videos uh, supposedly showed Chuck Berry being given a golden shower by a blonde woman. And then after soaking in her piss, Berry apparently tells her to open her eyes and mouth and asks whether his urine is, quote, nice and salty. Because why not? If something was amiss in his urine, I'm sure she'd know about it and want to point it out to him simply for academic and health reasons. Uh, The woman, so enthralled by being pissed on by Chuck Berry, then tells him that she loves him and asks him for a kiss. To which Chuck Berry responded, he can't kiss her because she smells like his piss. He does allow her, of course, to eat his ass because he was such a gentleman and during the ass-eating, Chuck Berry unleashes a long and very loud series of farts and then says can you smell my fart now i'm not going to put this video on here because i do have a little bit of dignity i'm not even going to put the audio to this video on here because i have a tiny bit, bit of dignity but i am going to insist you as my faithful listeners look this video up and listen to it because the decibel level of the fart that he does in this woman's face is astounding but even more hilarious was the photograph Bill sent me of the look on her face, which is complete shock and fright. In no way had she been expecting this. Her night was probably going to go south anyway, as has been the past time for most hookers, but little did she know that rock and roll legend Chuck Berry would be pissing on her face telling her to eat her ass, eat his ass, and finally, completely and deliberately, uncorking one of the best-timed best and hilarious-sounding farts in human history. I mean, at this point, Barry's music career was finished anyway, right? So adding the creepy old man title to his long list of accolades didn't really cause much of a stir. Uh, he's still widely considered to be one of the greatest musicians of all time, uh, proving that... Trying to watch women pee is perfectly acceptable if you're either a skilled musician or any German on the planet. Okay, moving on. So, last episode, in, in, in our last episode, I went over the, uh, the Scott Rogers self-defense against bar... So, bar Room Self-Defense, Bar Fight Self-Defense by Scott Rogers. I went over that in the last episode. But I found one that's even more hilarious... And it's called the SPEAR, S-P-E-A-R, SPEAR system, SPEAR system to stay, quote, rape safe, hosted by Tony Blower. Now, Tony Blower, if you look into him, he sells special armor to wear when you pretend to rape people. And also, Tony Blower has lost his goddamn mind. I don't know if he grew up on the streets outside of a rape factory or what, but he's living on planet Tony Blauer, which apparently is the stabbing capital of the universe where nothing goes unraped. Um, Tony Blauer invented the system of Chen Fendou, which is Chinese for I read a Bruce Lee book and I vote against rape whenever given the option. Uh, so the video begins with Tony recording the intro of how to stay rape-free on his balcony, which... <laughs> I'm guessing was his city-side apartment, and uh, this video falls apart in less than 10 seconds. First, Tony talks about how he doesn't teach martial arts moves. He teaches a mindset, a concept that will keep you rape safe. He then gets interrupted by a low-flying aircraft. Now, where a normal person would stop filming if interrupted, he just instead goes completely insane. He starts incorporating it into his speech. He says, and I fucking quote here, this is classified information. That's why we've got helicopters flying overhead. What the fuck is he talking about? He's a res- he's recording a description of a concept on a VHS camcorder for retail market and he's protecting it with helicopters? Why? Are they going to be are they going to drop napalm on his cameraman? Are we to believe that the spear system to keep women rape safe is so effective that the government and terrorists alike are constantly coming up with schemes to steal it from Tony Blauer? And how exactly will the helicopters keep the system protected? Will they scream ineffective martial arts tips and hope the enemy spies get mixed up? Plus, who decided that all this information on how to prevent rape should be classified? Shouldn't you be extremely suspicious of why anyone would suggest that? If your goal is to teach people how to prevent rape and how to prevent being raped, shouldn't you want as many people as possible to know the details of it? Then, it gets crazier, because he warns the viewer, in this case, myself, that people are using listening devices to get this information right at this very moment. But, not to worry, because he has a SWAT team there to take care of it. I'm serious. He claims to have a SWAT team at the ready to handle spies who are trying to steal his anti-rape techniques. And to be honest, I couldn't understand some of the SWAT team part because the helicopters were drowning him out, but he definitely said something that implied there was a SWAT team close by to protect the intellectual copyrights of his karate tape. Now, personally, I think Tony sent the National Guard into his apartment complex that night to rape everyone within earshot of his balcony, and anybody who knew how to prevent it got arrested for stealing the classified information. Uh, The best part of the video, however, is, is that the whole video is like that. Tony never teaches anything for more than 10 seconds before getting sidetracked by his own gritty and vivid imagination. At one point, he loses track of where he is because he starts ranting about quote, all those damn guys who sign up for rape prevention classes just to prove how they don't work. I don't know exactly what brought him to this this level in his life, but I'm fully of the opinion that when faced with an actual rapist, Tony Blauer would take what he knows about Eastern martial arts, remember a story about a kung fu fighter who was raped, and then tell it to his attacker before hearing a car and announcing that it must be the secret mobile headquarters of his archenemy, Professor Crime. Because that is... That's Tony Blower. I I actively want everybody to watch the Tony Blower uh, spear system to stay rape safe because it is, it's worth, it's worth a watch. It's worth the 10 minutes. It's worth the 15 minute video that they have. And again, like Scott Rogers, you can find it on YouTube. Now, let's talk about an actual martial artist. Not just any actual martial artist. Let's talk about Jean-Claude Van Damme. Let's talk a little bit JCVD. Now, I know what you're thinking. And I agree. JCVD is arguably our country's greatest president. He has a fight record of 4,078-0 with 831 no contests due to doing the splits and punching people in the balls. He gets a boner on international television every 46 hours at precisely the same mathematical rate humans are attacked by sharks. But science only refers to this as a coincidence. He is crushed enough testicles to fill 14 oatmeal museums and yet despite these impressive figures our love affair with him seems to have gone cold for many years america's only interaction with van damme had been when fat people collapse at exactly the right spot of a blockbuster video the film jcvd which was his first theatrical release in many years was kind of like a heartfelt apology to 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 us as the masses he knows he's no angel he did that movie with Dennis Rodman. There was some rough legal battles, drugs, a movie about exploding pants starring Rob Schneider. And then when he thought he had his shit together and was ready to patch things up, he saw us with Scary Movie 1, 2, 3, and 4 and just kind of decided that he's going to hang out in his backyard on a hammock for a while. Uh, the point that I'm making here is that uh, Jean-Claude can't take all the blame in this relationship. We both made a lot of mistakes. I've decided to uh, counterbalance this by go back Going back to Jean Claude, and uh, I'm determined to make it work. But to do so, you have to take into account of his late a string of his latest straight to DVD movies, and hope that they can rekindle the spark that we had back when he first dipped his fists in broken glass, and it made me instantly grow a beard, or when every second of hard t- of the movie Hard Target made my girlfriend preg- pregnant. Uh, before. Uh, no. No, it happened. Every second of the movie Hard Target made you pregnant. That's exactly what happened. That's how our son was born. We didn't even have sex to to impregnate you. It was just Hard hard Target. Uh, You know, before I start, I want to talk about the film secrets of Jean-Claude Van Damme and how they are extremely dangerous in the wrong hands. Uh, Because of this, analysis of his films has to be carefully encoded which I've learned, if you don't do, your eyes will only see a series of shapes that tell your brain to die. So, I will be using the standard Van Damminator series uh, rating for each of these movies. It is the standardized system I developed to uh, measure the Van Damness of any movie with Jean-Claude Van Dam in them. It is a scale of 1 to 10 that takes into consideration all the important qualities of any any Van Dam picture. Uh, his naked, muscly ass, with or without an exercise or an excuse, uh, is this a romantic, and is, is the romantic lead a sassy female reporter? Is there a muddy fight in the rain with everything on the line? And of course, does he do the splits? Other criteria are also taken into consideration, but if you have to wear f- you, you'd have to wear five sets of 3D goggles to even read a description of how complicated they are. So I'm risking a lot telling you as much as I've said already, you know, so imagine this. Nothing survives the apocalypse except for Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. All future communication in society would be based now on the plot lines of these movies, and that's the only valid reason I've invented the system to quickly categorize a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie plot. All of his plots fall into one of five categories. Number one, revenge. Over a lost loved one drives Van Damme into karate-filled circumstances. Number two. On the run from the law, military, or mafia, Van Damme cl- clearly flees for his life into karate-filled circumstances. Number three. Jean-Claude Van Damme is unwittingly involved in karate-filled circumstances by a second Jean-Claude Van Damme. Four. Four. A movie that is a rehash of a a different movie, but only now stars Jean-Claude Van Damme. Or, five, a film that just makes no sense at all. So, that brings us to the movie Wake of Death, which is the first plot. Revenge of a lost loved one drives Van Damme into karate-filled circumstances. So, it has Van Damme starring as Ben Archer, a bouncer who kicks ass first and talks never. The bil- the villain of the movie is brought up when you find out that Ben Archer's wife works for the NIS. And after finding a container filled with Chinese immigrants, she brings one home with her. Now, what she doesn't know is that this is the daughter of an international criminal, Sun Quan, played by Simon Yam, who was in the movie Naked Killer 2. Uh, it's a Chinese martial arts movie. you got to look it up on your own. Uh, you might not recognize that th- that movie because... As I said, you got to look it up on your own. It was also distributed with the title, Legal Rape. And then again, Raped by an Angel. And then finally, just Super Rape. In the film industry, starring in a movie called Three Different Kinds of Rape is kind of what I call a uh, triple threat. Uh, So the plot of this movie is that sometimes people in movies do crazy things, like train oil drillers to be astronauts, or decide child custody cases through arm wrestling contests. Which... Is okay because movies are stupid but in wake of death the super rape of American cinema there are realistic consequences to the stings as stupid as an immigration officer stealing an immigrated alien from her office within 30 minutes so Sun Quan then of course kills Van Damme's wife and you know what that means Sun Quan you know what you've just done killing Van Damme's wife was your first mistake not wearing a cup is your last mistake As far as the cinematography in this film goes, you have to realize that this is not only a classic JCVD movie, it's barely even a movie. Hours pass between action scenes, and after Van Damme's wife dies, there's no one left alive that talks. It's like an uncompromising exploration of cinematic violence as an art. No car is crashed without a visual metaphor and 40 crane shots. Knocking on a door in wake of death requires 15 camera setups and twice as many jump cats. Uh, cuts. I'm sorry. I wrote the word cats on my notes jump cuts I can't tell if Van Damme is working with a brilliant cinematographer or the International Society of triggering epileptic seizures uh, Dialogue as far as when you track down your wife's killer a normal movie would have you integrate someone and their words would create information depending on what they were put the situation they were put putting sometimes we call this language In Wake of Death, it goes like this. Jean-Claude and his friends taser someone who might know where Sun Quan is. Everyone screams Chewbacca sounds while being tied to a chair and then power drilled. And then they put the film into a blender with a bottle of ketchup. My working theory is that Wake of Death is made to sneak jerk-off material into killers in prison. Then you get The Hardcores, which is the fifth plot. Something that just doesn't make sense. Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme plays Philip Savage, an Iraq veteran plagued with Iraq flashbacks. Now, the name of the movie, again, is called The Hardcores, as in C-O-R-P-S, C-O-R-P-S, Uh I don't understand how I made it all the way to 2006 without anybody thinking of the name The Hardcores as a movie title, because that's like being the guy who invented the barbed wire tattoo. It's so simple and clever that you're sure someone must have done it already, and was probably just like, no, we, no way we can name it that. But anyway, it's about a former boxer turned uh, business mogul, and the rapper determined to kill him. If The Deadliest Warrior did an episode where the historical figures in question were Suge Knight and George Foreman, and the result was to find out what would happen if they met in a field in the field of battle, this would be the movie that based, that it's based on. And George Foreman gets a Jean-Claude Van Damme as his uh, gets Jean-Claude Van Damme on his team. The rapper factor, Jet Li and Steven Seagal both revitalized their American careers by sharing the spotlight with rappers like Most Def and DMX. But fuck that. Jean-Claude Van Damme only shares the spotlight with one man, a second Jean-Claude Van Damme. So despite its hip-hop theme and almost entirely African-American cast, it's as approachable as the hip- to the hip-hop community as a haunted uh, hockey game at Burning Man. The twist in this film, however, requires Jean-Claude Van Damme to protect the uh, boxer from the rapper. And here's where the film gets completely insane. Instead of letting Van Damme put together a trained security guard force, he has to select from random people at the gym. And if you're hoping there's a good reason for this, you've got to be fucking kidding me. If the boxer had told uh, Van Damme to select random homeless people for the uh, barbecue of Destiny, Rib's cook-off, it would have made about as much sense in in relation to the rest of this screenplay. JCVD, accustomed to madness, however, is unfazed by this assignment. He selects a small Asian man doing spinning moves and another guy doing cartwheels. Then, he recruits a cowboy. I think in the director's cut, he also gets an Eskimo and a Teen Wolf who fit together to form a truck. Uh, he, also, he almost overlooks a miniature, miniature kickboxing girl until she, until she proves she can fight by standing toe-to-toe with Van Damme's kneecaps and wildly missing him with 300 punches in a row. Uh, keep in mind that Van Damme is an actor and a martial artist, the two shortest types of people in the world, aside from chocolate factory workers and shrink ray victims. So the fact that she came up to his waist means that she <laughs> has to be negative two feet tall. And now she's on the hardcores. Or is she? After a 15 second montage of the hardcores training, nearly all the people I described to you are never seen again. So that's some Jean Claude Van Damme movies. Um, I want to talk a little bit about inter- independent wrestling and how it, to me, is the breeding ground of true champions in the wrestling world. Um, you know, let, let, let's face it society sees professional wrestlers as a ridiculous job. If you're getting paid to participate in a fictionalized romp consisting of men in tights pretending to injure, injure one another, that's, that society's not going to look at that as a real job. But, like most jobs, I'm here to tell you it only looks easy from the outside. Now, I have a friend. His name on the independent circuit is Mickey Gambino. And Mickey Gambino is an independent wrestler. But there's a whole bunch of fascinating and horrifying things that you probably didn't know about the sport that I've learned from him, from from living vicariously through his career. Number one, the referees are often the ones who tell the wrestlers what to do next. If you ever look at the referees, be it on WWE or in the independent circuit or whatnot, you'll see that they have a little little hearing device in their ear. And, you know, why why does the referee need an earpiece? Well, he, he, the truth is is that you wouldn't think a, a referee would need much of anything. Isn't his job to just kind of sort of watch the match and conveniently get distracted when the evil wrestler does something shady? That is basically the ref... D- The ref is the guy, actually, in actuality, basically directing most of the action. The wrestlers know what they're supposed to do up to a point, but they're not the writers. They're not in charge. There has to be someone directly in communication with the guys organizing the match to deliver instructions to the ring, such as in-match changes to the script, and uh, that someone is often the referee. He gets directions from from the agents who set up the matches, or in the case of the uh, World Wrestling Federation, or I'm sorry, WWE, Vince McMahon himself, through an earpiece. So when you see the ref talking to wrestlers, he's not offering warnings or stern reminders of the rules. He'll call out the next spots, or which is, ter, you know, in business terms for the moves, for the wrestlers they need a reminder, stop matches from going too long, and make sure that the match has the right flow. Sometimes a decision can be made to change an outcome in the middle of the match, and the ref can jump in to do a quick count the next time the designated loser uh, hits the mat. Here's how the process works. A script is written, although I do want to point out that there is... Uh, professional wrestling is quickly becoming more impro- improv-, improv improv, it's more improvisational uh both in the imp- indie leagues and uh definitely more in WWE because the promoter is um they but they are used to approve these scripts and the outcome and then everyone learns their lines and so up to that point it's not much different from any live theater except for here you have this undercover director on the stage Uh, doing everything from directing live changes to the story to relaying acting notes to the actors involved. Now, wrestlers are choreographing the match on the fly. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of people think that they go, you know, they work, like, for weeks coming up, like, okay, let's go to the gym, let's work this match again, let's work this match again, but that's not how it is. Um, You know, it's not like live theater in that aspect. You know, if one player decides to improvise and the others aren't into it, somebody can wind up in a fucking wheelchair in pro wrestling, uh, this is what most people don't get about pro uh, pro wrestling. It's scripted, not fake. Scripted means the moves are worked out by all trained parties to be as safe as possible, but the wrestlers don't get to rehearse the match move by move. It's not like a fight scene in the movies, where a performer may spend weeks working out the choreography. Yet every move needs both re- because every re- move needs both wrestlers cooperating perfectly. Or somebody's neck will get broken. That means they need to talk to one another. I will watch a match and notice how one wrestler will do a move where he's just kind of holding the other guy's head for a bit? Maybe in a side headlock or an arm bar for no particular reason? And this frequently used move is called a rest hold. Not only does it give the wrestlers a chance to take a breather, but they can also communicate with each other about what they're going to do next. This is either to remind the other wrestler what's coming up, Or to say, hey, how about you throw me headfirst into a stack of steel uh, beams? Sometimes we're not even that subtle in the ring. They just shout out under the cover of the crowd what needs to happen next. Listen closely, and you can hear it sometimes during the broadcast. Now remember, there's a sometimes huge live audience there. There are no timeouts, and anything that goes wrong has to be smoothly covered over without breaking the flow of the action. So you might notice that these are exactly the type of quick creative decisions that are difficult to make in the dazed moments after you've been bashed in the head with a folding chair. And yes, the moves do hurt. Wrestlers sometimes do go, quote unquote, stiff. Stiff means that they are forcing things to look as real as by possible by actually hitting the other person. Uh, wrestling legend Vader, God rest, had a reputation for going stiff. That's how Mick Foley lost a fucking ear. Um, number three. Injuries in pro wrestling are very real. And very common. So it's true that wrestling scripts also uh, often include fake injuries as part of a storyline, but behind the scenes real injuries are constant. Wrestling is the most physically demanding sport out there. There is no off season, and not much break between matches. Lacerations are a daily occurrence, you suffer numerous knee and ankle injuries, and some injuries are so brutal that they need to be edited out of your television broadcast. Uh, get hit in the head with a forward object at the wrong angle, and suddenly you've got a gash on your scalp that takes 22 staples to close. There's been a lot of controversy about all the concussions in the NFL and the long-term effects on player health. Well, pro wrestlers have a death rate 20 times higher than that of NFL players. Pro football players only lost six players directly from injuries since 1970. Meanwhile, between 1997 and 2004, 65 pro wrestlers died of heart attacks growth enhancements, abuse, and other causes directly related to wrestling. This isn't to downplay the health problems other athletes suffer, mind you. Long-term effects of head injuries are terrible, no matter how you look at them. The point I'm making here is that only one of the above is thought to be a fake sport. What makes wrestling so brutal, if most of the punches aren't actually landing, you ask? Um, let's start with the ring they're getting slammed into. It looks pretty soft, but it's actually just a thin piece of plywood placed over thinner mats, And a bunch of steel springs underneath that. Look at the ropes that they get thrown into. Those are actual, they they actually use metal cables that are covered in tape. A few pounces off those and you have bruises that will be with you longer than the cartilage in your knees. I have mostly seen Mickey Gambino, I have personally seen rather, Mickey with very real and very painful bleeding welts from running the ropes just to get his timing right. And that is just the standard setup. When wrestlers get creative, it also gets dangerous. Again, take the very classic 1998 Hell in the Cell match between The Undertaker and Mick Foley. A legendary event among wrestling fans that took place right here in Pittsburgh. It was a cage match in which it was scripted for them to fight atop the cage. And then for Foley to be thrown off the 20-foot-something cage down onto a, quote, soft target. A ringside table that is rigged to break the fall. Uh... Being thrown onto a breakaway table was dangerous enough, but it had to be done before, although not from the... It had been done before, rather, but not from that height. You know, despite good old J.R. shouting that they've killed him and that he's broken in half, that part of it was all planned. Foley said so in his first autobiography, which I own and have read multiple times. However, however, something did go wrong halfway through the match. And getting back atop the cage, Foley was slammed down onto the chain link uh, top, by The Undertaker in a chokeslam, which then broke away, dropping him down to the surface of the ring itself. The ring that I just explained to you is a thin mat over a solid surface. Now you'll hear how the announcers are saying to stop the match at that point. That was not acting. The people at ringside honestly thought he was dead. He wasn't, very fortunately. He only received a concussion, a dislocated jaw, a dislocated shoulder, a bruised kidney, a gash in his lip, and had one of his teeth knocked out and another broken. And then, he got up and finished the fucking match. So, maybe it's no surprise that when my friend Ryan McCormick, Grimace, joined me for Topic Roulette, I said that my body ended my own career before it even began. I'd never have survived a training session in pro wrestling. That being said, there are schools for pro wrestling. Just like any other vocation, you've got to learn how to do it. It's not the sort of thing you can just go to the park and practice on strangers, which I personally feel would be awesome, but it's also apparently illegal as fuck. And the training schools, especially back in the old days, were brutal. Remember, everybody knows that continuing to perform through the injuries is key part of the job. So that's how they filter guys out. And by that I mean they do their damnedest to cripple you, and if you get injured and come back for more, the trainer sees you as worthy of their time. Hulk Hogan... Famed wrestler, and enemy of all shirt sleeves in history, had his leg broken by his trainer in first set in his very first wrestling training session. That is a fact. Look it up. It's not quite as brutal these days, but as long as wrestling is wrestling, the training is not going to be about seeing if you can survive the equivalent of getting repeatedly run over by a spandex-wearing garbage truck. And that's how it is. Injuries are just seen as part of training and part of life for a wrestler. And lastly. Almost all wrestling positions are very low pay for beginners in the independent circuit. Earning fifty dollars a night is considered a good night in the Indies. That's about as good as it gets. Other than a few exceptions, such as a wrestler is well known uh, and loved, like when Raven left the WWE to go back to the independents in '03, he got paid like four hundred dollars a show. Yeah. It's understandable, but still very low compared to, like, a live television WWE contract, which in and of itself is still very low. So, let me put it to you this way. Unless you're at the top echelon in, like, the WWE or Impact Wrestling or the upcoming AEW, where the top people make upwards of $10, grand, 10 million a year, you're not going to make a living from working as a pro wrestler. It's like a pyramid, where only a few guys at the top get to make big money and they become the beloved stars <clears throat> that you see each week. The average promoter at the indie level just can't afford to shell out a lot of uh, fucking money. So if they bring in a guest star for a show, like, you know, famous wrestler Mick Foley, they've likely saved up money a bit for that. They've been saving money for a while for that. Certain promoters can pay more, especially if they're in an established company, for example. Uh, Resistance Pro Wrestling in Chicago, I've heard, pays pretty well, thanks to being run by Billy Corgan. But um, even with all the power of mid-90s alternative rock backing your event it still may not pay enough for most wrestlers to go full-time. Your average independent wrestler likely works a regular 9-to-5 job and tries to wrestle anywhere from 1-to-10 times a month, depending on what the schedule will allow. Now, anyone who knows uh, Corey Graves, the announcer on uh, WWE Monday Night Raw and WWE SmackDown, anybody that knows him personally will ask him, I want you to ask him what uh, what it's like these days for Sterling James Keenan and he will tell you some serious shit. You can ask Mickey Gambino, too, and he'll tell you what 15 years in the indies is like. Even in the WWE, the pay for most wrestlers isn't great. Not everyone you see on screen is a well-paid regular. Local wrestlers are hired all the time for shows, even not to wrestle. Sometimes the script calls for security guards or the police to come out and escort a wrestler away, and a lot of times those are the uh, local wrestlers hired for events. A very lucky few get to enter squash matches. Now, squash matches are where they get to fight a, a famous wrestler and lose very badly to make that wrestler look strong. I know some wrestlers who worked for the WWE in a few minor appearances, and the top pay was around $300 for a tournament. Uh, while that is a quick buck, remember that, those, that these wrestlers have to go right back to their regular jobs. As a matter of fact, Mickey Gambino got hired for a uh, security role on WWE Raw, Back in the year 2000, I think it was 2005, where Kurt Angle came out. It was the match where Kurt Angle put he he had the uh, the gimmick going where he would bet his Olympic gold medal on the line that he was so good no one could beat him, and then he lost it to Eugene, the uh, WWE's attempt at uh, being you know uh, mentally handicapped friendly. That night, the man who held Kurt Angle's gold medal in the ring was my friend. Mickey Gambino. So, uh, you know, that's what happens. These wrestlers go right back to their uh, jobs. Even among the headlining wrestlers in the WWE, the guys who are taking home six figures have to deal with the fact that A, they can't do this job forever, and B, the WWE has no health insurance. So these are all horrific daily injuries that huge salary diminishes with the medical bills, And if you want to buy health insurance for yourself to cover them, make sure you're sitting down when they tell you what your premiums are once you tell them what you do for a living. So, to review, it's almost as if pro wrestling is built on a system designed specifically to filter out all but the absolute craziest of human beings, which actually makes sense if you think about it. This is just a little insight for you. I just felt like giving everybody a little hint about some behind-the-curtains look at the uh, pro wrestling world and, uh, you know, kind of why I love it so much. And also why I'm sick of people calling it fake. Don't call it fake. It's scripted, not fake. Um, okay. So, you know, last thing I'm going to talk about here. Most people... I'm I'm a parent. I'm, I'm a parent. I've been a parent for seven years. Most people have a pretty basic idea of what it's like to be a parent. Your schedule is at the mercy of basically a tiny lunatic who never has both hands free and uh, every hunter's moon is spent brewing tea in an eggshell to force the changeling beast to speak and give you a quest to retrieve your real baby. Um, Any parent knows all this going in. It's not even worth mentioning the basic crap, like how your days are filled with stupid, limitless joy and wonder. However, there are a few things I discovered as a father that were surprisingly fucked up, and I'm going to go over them for you now. Number one, babies are apparently an invitation for every stranger To come and just talk to you. So. Anybody that knows me knows that my perfect hell. Would be sitting next to someone who wants to just know anything about me. Has strong thoughts on a particular sports team. And just has to fill me in on the details of their day. I don't exactly hate strangers. But I absolutely do hate strangers. And small talk with a people person is kind of like having condomless sex with a beehive. There's going to be discomfort just to make some pest happy. Now, I don't make a secret of my natural and bubbling hatred for the public, so the majority of you who share my point of view can sense I'm not the guy who's going to care about the climate they're they're used to or the uh, best burger that they've had in Cedar Rapids. But that all changed when I had a child. Now, if you're carrying a baby or pushing a baby in a stroller, Or putting a baby in a a shopping cart. People who would have otherwise likely never talked to you in their lives just walk right up to you and ask you questions like, hey how does that poop? Oh hey does that eat out of tits? They could absolutely have a 15 minute like 15 minutes of questions about your child's stroller or teeth. They might give an impassioned speech about how they, a person who sucks, also has a child with hair. They're all eager to find out how old your baby is. But I have no idea why, because no matter what you say, their only response is, uh, is, oh, that's a great age. You'll never meet a parent who holds up a fingerless hand and says, the reason I ask about your child's age is because I'm looking for the 17-month-old who did this to me. They, you might be thinking, so sorry for you to have to suffer through honest pleasantries with nice people. Oh, Chad. Oh, that's so bad. And, you know, fuck you. I've, hi- I've admitted that I'm mentally irregular, but I like to warm up to someone before I disclose my plans to impregnate my child's mother again, if such plan exists. Another thing I should mention is, while some parents have intimate questions about your family's genitals and nipples, most of them only start talking to you to eventually share condescending advice. Now, no one on the planet is more sure that their dumbass basic take at parenting is far better than yours than a parent that you've just met. It doesn't matter if they're the head of a loving household or an oxycodone addict who can't figure out the whole wire hanger abortion thing. All parents are dying to share some profound nugget of bedtime management or preschool selection that only they know, that they've that they've socked away for simply this for exactly this occasion. And I'll be honest, I've done it. I'm as guilty as any other dad out there on this matter as well. But uh You know, that just exists. Number two, baby entertainment is robot-generated insanity. When you watch Sesame Street as an adult, one of the things you'll notice are the little moments of insanity in it. It's a show put together by, I'm sure, well-intentioned educators using, I'm sure, the latest research on child development, but every now and then something truly inexplicable happens. After a short sketch about stamps, they might show two cartoons craning into each other in the air and the, the, uh, the, the number 5 is created out of the smoking remains, and that never gets mentioned again. Then a fireman might run onto the screen and say only the word cooperation. Sesame Street is a special level of crazy, but it's nothing, nothing compared to the absolute the absolute black abyss of crazy that is called YouTube Kids. Now, no matter where you start on YouTube, kids, you are never more than two two clicks away from a six-hour marathon of a Taiwanese murderer using his tiny baby hands to pull toy or, toy, toys out of eggs. You will have to watch this happen, and you'll balk in amazement at the fact that this has got 670 million views because the machines have long ago worked out how to hypnotize babies they will stare at these chains of videos until the world collapses around them and they are mummified knowing only the lyrics to Baby Shark. I once took a tablet from my son after the algorithm had taken hold. The resulting tantrum taught me not only where the best places in my kitchen to hide and weep were located, but also the terrible truth that lie beyond the veil. That truth being that the goal of these videos is to take the longest possible shit in your child's brain. For instance, maybe a rhino gets dumped in green paint while a narrator moans the Russian word for green, before the Incredible Hulk pumps his dick at you. The end result? You sorta learn the color green, but you're kinda learning it only in the same way that the CIA might learn the effects of marijuana by watching that show Reefer Madness. I'm worried you're... I... I, okay, let me take a second here. I am worried that you're picturing a bunch of low-budget videos made by very bad educators, and Let me tell you now, you naive fool, that those types of videos only make up the outer reaches of a galaxy swirling around a a core of computer-generated anti-logic. One or two more clicks and your child will skip past the shapes and colors and enter a loop of videos where nothing has a point. The same song will get remixed a thousand different ways as a CGI animal does aggressively random things. It's like being at a rave and dropping acid, only for everyone and everything to instantly turn into lizard monsters. Now, these aren't all... at all like the crazy videos that regular YouTube queues up for adults about science being fake or Nazis being people too. No. YouTube Kids consists of a primordial lunacy your mind has no context for. Cats will drive larger cats onto hands made out of dinosaurs. Gorillas will feed bananas to cows as an entrance feed to a water slide. They are so fucking pointless and deranged that your child has no choice to, but to be memori- mesmerized by them. Aggressive data collection has determined exactly how to speak to the soft, unformed parts of toddler brains, and it's being used to share with them only madness. You know when your internet stops working for a few seconds? That's the lag from when YouTube Kids digitizes an unattended baby, and they're now part of the algorithm. Like in Tron. And Tron can't even help them in this part. They're just part of the system now. Now, lastly, as a new parent, your new parent brain is going to look for baby products that, uh, are going to say that there's the safest and most educational for your child. In a lot of ways, being a parent lowers your defenses. You're desperate to succeed at any cost. You have no clue what that means and you're always a bit sleep deprived and thereby delirious. Now, these things combined make you an ideal mark for grifters. For example, say you're walking through Target and you notice a section for something that pre-warms the packet of baby wipes that you use to clean shit off your baby's ass when changing its diaper. As a new parent, or as a regular consumer, you're like, nope, that shouldn't exist, there's no purpose for that. But as a new parent, your brain shrieks, holy fuck, we're supposed to be warming those up? How much frost damage has my baby's ass taken already? And you immediately call the pediatrician. It is a product that you realistically never will need, which on the best day, on on its best day, might make your unpredictable screaming baby 1% less unpredictable and screaming, but at the moment you buy it, it's going to be the most comforting $40 you ever spend. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of a VHS set of tapes called Baby Einstein that promised to make your baby a genius? Well, with the help of Oprah, or as she's known locally, Satan, and millions of confused, mindless parents, it grew into a $400, mil- $400 million business. It was nothing more than camcorder footage of toys while voices said unrelated words in random languages. It was both total bullshit and the perfect crime. After all, how do you prove your child didn't get smarter from keying a Troy train called a train in German? What do you do? You trap them in a maze? Do you, do you put them on a train? The fact is that when you truly want to believe something, Your brain is nice enough to turn off its ability to spot obvious lies, which is why the wall is going to keep us safe, right? So, also, this is why it took 10 years for anybody to complain to the FTC about Baby Einstein. They then took another four years before researchers actually looked into it, and this is going to seem very obvious to you after you hear it, but it turned out that the only difference between a baby Einstein baby and a regular baby is that one baby had verifiable idiots for parents who spent shitloads of money on VHS tapes of baby Einstein. Um, I like to think that there are effective educational learning toys out there, but in truth, there's virtually nothing to stop a sweatshop owner from slapping the word learning on a plastic fish that makes a fart sound. Now, lastly, As a parent, I've learned this. Babies are an excuse for every shitty impulse you will ever have. So, let's begin with this. Have you ever threatened to kill somebody? Maybe not anyone specific, just a directionless intent to murder. As a parent, you will find yourself doing this all the time, proudly, and publicly. When your child is born, every every parent immediately grows a new gland in their body. This I call the Liam Neeson gland, and its only job is to flood your mind with the thought of killing people for trying to do terrible things to your family. But since we live in an overwhelmingly safe world, indulging in these fantasies takes a lot of imagination. You might think, like, why would a man be alone at the mall if not to have sex with my son? Every fucked up bit of paranoia from toxic depths of your soul gets brought to the surface and and rebranded immediately as, quote, doing whatever it takes. Bless you to protect my family. Uh, Sometimes, parents don't even need a specific reason to threaten homicide, they just simply do it. The only difference between a serial killer's manifesto and a completely ordinary conversation with a parent is that the serial killer will have slightly fewer bags of human shit in their home. Children make you feel like the good guy in every argument you will ever have, especially when you're so very clearly being the asshole. You can proudly hold up an airport line all day if you have a kid. You have the moral high ground in any financial disagreement because the other person is quote, literally taking food out of your child's mouth. Everyone who is not the other parent to your kid is instantly public enemy number one and they stay there permanently even though you never intended to put them on any list to begin with. You've literally become the worst version of yourself and all in the name of being selfless. You feel good, like you've accomplished something. For all their screaming and peeing, Babies actually translate all your behavior into perceived heroism. But in reality, you're just another douchebag. You're just another person who procreated for the sake of procreating, and now that you've passed your genealogy on to, an, to a, a, a basically what it a, a, equates to a, a bag of meat that can't do anything for itself, except for maybe watch YouTube kids and hear the same song go. Bleh! over and over for 45 fucking hours while a CGI bear pulls its eyes out of its own socket and swaps the eyes with the C- those of a CGI duck, you don't give a shit. You're like, hey, you know what? Kids being kids. That's what it is to be a parent. Oh, you just don't understand because you don't have kids. And you, it makes you a terrible fucking human being. It made me a terrible fucking human being, but it also filled me with so much joy and love that however terrible I become, I feel completely justified in in every way and I there's no there's no way for, for me for you to crawl out of that hole after you become a parent There's no way for it to happen. You you're stuck in that hole You've literally dug that grave and now you've got to lay in it You've got to lay in it. Well, they while your baby fills the grave up around you with bags of its human shit Thank you. Thank you. This has been the element of surprise. I hope you've all enjoyed it um, that being said, I don't know when the next episode's going to be. Uh, being completely transparent, we are moving to a uh, new apartment because the apartment we're currently in is going to be bulldozed. We found that out. Uh, there was a lovely knock at the door one day. Hello? Oh, it's Tess. Tess the landlady. Hi, Tess. What brings you by? Oh, I just wanted to let everyone know we are going to be evicted. What do you mean? What do you mean be evicted? We're never late on our rent. We are, we follow all the guidelines of the lease. We're very good tenants. you Oh, no, 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 no. It's just the land has been sold and uh, they're going to turn it into a car lot. And so, in three months, in the beginning of September, all this is going to be bulldozed. Oh, okay. Well, that narrows it down. So, you got three months to get out and find a new place because they're going to bulldoze your home. So, we're in the process of moving. That being said, I don't know when the next episode's going to be. Just hang in there. Uh, that's also why it's been so long between episodes here. But uh, that being said, before I leave you go, as always, check out a Fireside Chat podcast hosted by my friend Ryan McCormick. Uh, check out 4AM Knows All of My Secrets, hosted by Ryan McCormick and Tiffany Moore. You can find both of those on Libsyn.com, as well as Stitcher and uh, um, iTunes. Very, very, Basically anywhere you can find podcasts is where you can find those, uh, those uh, at. Uh, check out the McSauce podcast hosted by Ian, Paul, and Matt. That's available on Podomatic.com. Uh, they also have uh, stuff up on YouTube. Check out Case in Point podcast hosted by uh, Jody and Justin. Um, that is on AudioBoom.com and also on YouTube. And then, you know, lastly, I just do want—I also forgot to promote. Uh, check out the uh, EOS, the Element of Surprise um, YouTube channel where I just put up videos of mentally irregular things. Um, That being said, thank you very much for your time, and cue the fucking bear music. I'm going you